so much, worship team. It is so good to be with everybody. We all dream of being great, but some of us dream of being the greatest. In 2008, one of my dreams came true. I'm so excited to share it with you. I got to attend the live recording of America's favorite TV show, The Price is Right. It's one of the, uh, the longest-running game shows in TV history. Can you believe that? And I'm sure most of you, most of us, have watched this show from the, from the comfort of our own homes. Or maybe if you're younger, maybe when you're sick and you skipped out on school, you turn on the TV and there's The Price is Right. A lot of us have watched this show, but um, a few of us actually made the decision to actually be a contestant on the show. And so in 2006, after a failed attempt to be a contestant on the show with the original Bob Barker, the legend himself, I went back in 2008, and this time with the new host, Drew Carey, to give it another try. And now, if, you're, uh, if you've seen The Price is Right, you know that it's all about prizes. It's all about winning free stuff. And the best prize, can you guess it? A car. Not just a car, but a new car. I like how they say it's new, as if they're going to give you an old one. <laughs> Winning a car on The Price is Right is, is the goal. You are not great unless you win a prize on a car on The Price is Right. And so I go back to The Price is Right, and I'm with some friends for the live recording. This is my second time, and the show begins, and I'm waiting in my seat. And I'm like, a, I'm like that little kid at a baseball game with my glove, like waiting for a foul ball to like come my way and catch it. There's like no chance of me getting on the show. There's so many steps, if you know the game of the price is right, to be able to actually win a prize. And so I'm there, and uh, the show begins, and I take my seat, and I'm there, and I'm waiting for my name to be called. And finally, I hear my name. Joseph Fogel, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right, and I'm ecstatic. I'm so excited. This is so surreal, and so I run forward to a place called Contestants Row, and Contestants Row is a four-person bidding station, and so you get to bid on the next prize, and I, I bid on the next prize, and before I know it, I win, and I'm up on stage to meet Drew Carey, and for the chance to win a new car, and guess what? I play the game. And I win the car. And it was awesome. It was a great feeling. And you might be thinking, Joe, your price is right. Dreams came true. You, you won the car. But not really. We all dream of being great, but some of us dream of being the greatest. Now, the whole reason I wanted to be a contestant on The Price is Right was not to win a car, even though that's really cool. I got the car. I sold it off the lot to another person. The reason why I wanted to be on The Price is Right was for the chance was for the honor, was for the recognition of spinning. We got a picture here? There it is, yeah. They call it the big wheel. It's the best big wheel ever. I wanted to spin this thing with all of my might. This thing weighs about 2,000 pounds, and it is a lot heavier than it, than it looks. And so I get called down to contestants row, I get called up onto the stage, and I get a chance to spin the big wheel. And I've always I've always had a dream of, of spinning this thing. Ever since I was little, staying homesick, watching The Price is Right, eating eat noodle soup, like one day I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna be on The Price is Right. And I'm gonna spin this thing with all of my might. With all of my strength, I'm gonna take a hold of this wheel and I'm gonna spin it. And so I get the chance to spin this. I wanna spin it faster than anyone in Price is Right history. 
And so I go back on the stage, and Drew Carey says, Joe, now it's, you know, it's your turn. And with kind of this grin and the smile, I walk up to the wheel, and uh, I grab it, and I spin it with all my might. And as I spin the thing, I look over at Drew Carey. Drew Carey looks at me. He realizes that I put all my effort into spinning this thing. And he turns to the camera, and he looks at the camera, and he says these wonderful words, and I quote, he says, ladies and gentlemen, go to the kitchen, make yourself a sandwich, and come on back, because the wheel will still be spinning. That's what I was looking for. That was greatness. <laughs> In that moment, it was, the greatest, it was the greatest thing ever. I mean, Drew Carey picked me, Joe, to be on his show. And he gave me, Joe, the best compliment in the whole entire world. It was in that moment I was the big wheel spinning champion of the world. <laughs> we all uh, dream of being great. We all have different forms of how to achieve greatness. What is the good life and where do we stand in the midst of it all? Today, as we uh, continue in the Gospel of Mark, I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're one of Jesus' disciples. And I, and I often do this just to kind of get us familiar with how you must have been felt if you were one of his disciples. Jesus, the Son of God, picked you. He chose you out of the audience. He chose you out of the crowd to follow him, to spend time with him, not based upon what you did or who you were, but simply because he chose you. Can you imagine that? You see, for the disciples, Jesus choosing them must have been the biggest shock and the greatest compliment they have ever received. Jesus, you see me? You want me to follow you, really? And so the greatest person that ever walked the earth, Jesus, saw worth in ordinary men. Today we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 9 and starting in verse 30. And as we learn from Jesus what true greatness looks like. So we turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 and we're going to be starting in verse 30. And as, as you do that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, thank you that we get to um, just learn more about your son Jesus, more about his heart. And uh, Lord, I pray that we walk away changed as we do every week, as we just remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news of your son's death and resurrection and all the implications that means to our lives. Lord, we pray that we can learn how to be a servant more today. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, let's start in verse 30. It says this, They, Jesus and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, uh, what were you discussing on your way? But they kept silent, for on their way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, 
but him who sent me. As we continue our, our study in, in the book of Mark, we can see that it's split into two different parts. Mark chapter 1 through 8 can really focuses in on the question, who is Jesus? And Mark 9 through 16 focuses on the question, what did Jesus come to do? So as we move through this book, Mark is going to reveal to us more and more about the good news of Jesus and what he came to do. And so in today's passage, we read of Jesus' second prediction of his coming death and resurrection. This is the second time out of three times in chapters 8 through 10, where Jesus speaks plainly, openly about what will soon take place. And today we're going to walk through four things. First, Jesus shares with his disciples that he will be killed. Second, the disciples could not understand that Jesus would have to die. Third, Jesus asks the disciples a question in order to teach them. And lastly, Jesus teaches the disciples about true greatness in the kingdom of God. So first, Jesus shares with his disciples that he will be killed. Verse 31 says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered, handed over into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. The text is clear that Jesus, the Son of Man who is setting up an everlasting kingdom, is going to be handed over and killed. Handed over by whom? Some might say Judas, who is one of the 12 who sold Jesus for some coins. Others say the Jewish leaders. Others say Pilate. And while these things are true, who allowed this? Whose plan was this? Let's not forget that God the Father sent his son to be handed over and to die. People did not kill Jesus. God willingly sent Jesus to the cross. It was his plan all along. John 10 17 through 18 says this. You can follow with me on the screen. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This might seem like bad news, but it's actually great news in Jesus' death. Jesus follows the will of his Father who willingly handed him over and gives his son up in order for us to be saved and for order for us to have new life. And so Jesus, right from the beginning, he just shares the good news with his disciples that they might understand it, they might begin to live it, that they might begin to believe it, that it might transform everything that they are. So Jesus shares this with his disciples that he's going to die. And second, next, the disciples could not understand that Jesus would have to die. Follow with me in verse 32. But they, the disciples, did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask Jesus. We see here that the disciples have two reactions. The first might be common when we think of it is confusion. They did not understand Jesus' saying. The disciples were confused. They didn't understand what Jesus meant. They didn't know what, it, what he was talking about. It didn't fit into any categories that they had, and they, they really needed a huge paradigm shift. Many of the Jewish people, they, they longed and looked for a deliverer. What did the long-awaited Messiah look like? A military Messiah for many, to defeat the Romans. A priestly Messiah to clean up temple worship, or a heavenly Messiah to, to show us into the, the spiritual realm and visions of what's happening on earth and in heaven. These were some common expectations. What expectations do we have now that Jesus has come? 
What expectations do we have 2,000 years later? And we all have these faulty expectations, and some of them creep into our lives and cloud our vision of the biblical and historical Jesus. And I'm just going to name a few. We have the therapist Jesus. He is here to fix all of our problems. We have the genie Jesus. He's here to make all of our dreams come true. We have the butler Jesus. He's here to serve us and to give us whatever he wants. We have the price is right Jesus. He's here, he's here to give us gifts. We have the Wall Street Jesus. He's here to make us rich. Or the president Jesus. He's here to work through um, the government um, to reform it. We have moralistic Jesus. He's here to make us a better person. There was and there still is a lot of confusion about why Jesus was killed and why he rose from the dead. You see, when Jesus shows up, people don't know what to do with him. He's unlike any other man that's ever existed. So the first reaction we see here is confusion. The second reaction is fear. In verse 32b, they were afraid to ask him. Has anybody been with a supervisor or a boss and they didn't understand what they were saying? Have you ever been confused or fearful with someone maybe in a higher position of um, of power, and when they told you something, you were either too confused or too afraid to ask what they meant? I mean, what what happens if you get the answer wrong? Or worse, what happens if you say something wrong? What if the answer is not something that will benefit you? And so the disciples were afraid. And maybe this point backs perhaps to the earlier account where they remember Jesus' attempt to express a disapproval of Jesus's prediction of his death and resurrection. In chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus again spoke plainly about coming events, his, his death and his resurrection. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And Jesus turned not only to Peter, but to the disciples. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The disciples did not want to admit how confused they were or how afraid um, what, they, what Jesus was saying um, made them feel. Maybe Jesus was actually serious with his words. And so here's some takeaways as we just kind of begin this. First, the disciples did not understand Jesus' saying because it was not good news they could understand. They didn't understand Jesus because it was not news they could understand. The disciples were confused and fearful. Jesus gives a really hard saying, a, a prediction about what's going to happen in the future, I mean, I'd be rather confused and fearful too. After all, no one has ever seen someone die and come back to life in three days. Second, even if they could understand Jesus' words about his death and resurrection, it was not yet good news to them. Even if they could understand it, it was not good news yet. Because his death hasn't happened and his resurrection did not take place. It is not good news yet. It is still confusing. And so with their confusion and their fear, and it's mixed with a little bit of their pride and, and also shame, which we'll kind of cover in, in a little bit, this kept them, kept the disciples from admitting how puzzled and scared Jesus' teaching truly made them feel. And while Jesus was speaking plainly and teaching them plainly and leading them in a way, a new way of thinking, the disciples continued to think about themselves and the place in the kingdom of God. So ignoring what the disciples couldn't understand and they were too afraid to ask, the disciples began to set their minds on the things that were nearest to their hearts. So Jesus shares with his disciples. The disciples couldn't understand his lesson, his message. And then next, Jesus asks the disciples a question in order to teach them. I love this. 
It's just Jesus simply asking a question, which is kind of what the disciples needed to do when they were confused, when they were fearful. Just ask Jesus questions. When we ask Jesus questions, he meets us there. Jesus asks the disciples a question. Follow with me in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on your way? But they kept silent, for on their way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It must have been hard to be a disciple, chosen by Jesus to be in his inner 12, seeing his miracles, learning what he did, and, and trying to also do what he did. How does this not affect you? After all, Jesus picked these disciples. It was not like they were one of 12,000. It must have been difficult for the disciples not to dream, not to strategize, not to think about their own position and status and honor and power and influence. And so after Jesus shares his message of his death and resurrection, the self-seeking, status-seeking disciples were talking about who among them was the greatest. And Jesus wasn't ignorant of this. Jesus asked a simple question. What were you discussing on your way to Capernaum? He knew what they were talking about, and yet the disciples kept silent out of shame. And again, we just see that these emotions that the disciples are experiencing. First confusion, now fear, and now shame and pride. The argument was, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? Rank is a big deal in ancient life. Your status or your rank was not something that you could always control, and so many times... Um, status in a society was based upon noble birth or your birth order or where you were born or your advancements in the law. You couldn't easily change your career or transform your life or move to a new place. You were often stuck with what you were given. And so many of the Jewish people, they, they dreamed, they dreamt about new status, a new rank in the world to come, not based upon achievements, not based upon noble birth, but on faithfulness to God's covenant. Who is the greatest? The disciples were playing a comparison game. And it's a fun game to play. Anybody play the comparison game? <laughs> I mean, we all have this, this inner scoreboard that we have and also an outer scoreboard that we use to compare ourselves to others. What's your favorite comparison game? And some of them are harmless and some of them actually do some damage. But here's some of the things. If you're a kid, who's the favorite child? I'm the youngest of four. I'm still the favorite child. <laughs> Who's the best athlete? Who's the greatest of all time? Who's the best looking? Who has the best job or the coolest stuff? How about this? Who's been married the longest? Or has the best marriage? Who has the smartest kids? What college did your kid go to? The comparison game is so easy to play. And it doesn't just leave um, hurt feelings, but it, but it leads to judgment and pride, and injustice, and deceit. And the disciples wondered, they made comparison, who is the greatest? And the disciples must have maybe wondered, who of us has the most authority? Who has Jesus spent the most time with? Well, I'm in the inner three. Who has Jesus valued the most? Who is the most favored by God? The self-seeking, status-seeking disciples like us today easily fall into the trap of becoming self-absorbed. They were fighting, arguing. And the problem with comparison is that it's wrong. It's, that it's a sin. There's no place in the Christian life for comparison. And later on in this chapter, in chapter 9, Jesus talks about criticism. He talks about causing others to sin. 
And then here, what we're kind of focusing on this morning is he talks about comparison. To follow Jesus is not about what we think. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not found in our power, our possessions. It's not found in even our personality or our position. It's not found in our beauty. It's not found in fame. And so Jesus asks this simple question, what were you discussing? And he uses this question to to teach the disciples, to lead them into an understanding of what true greatness is going to look like in their journey ahead. Follow with me in verse 35. And he, Jesus, sat down. And teachers, rabbis would sit down to teach. And he sat down and he called the 12. And he said to them, it's a powerful statement, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Jesus says the way to be first in the kingdom is to be last of all and to be servant of all. To be first is to put your needs before others. To be first is to position yourself in a place of service for others. It's not to think of yourself as above anyone or beyond any task. Even tasks that might seem trivial or people that might seem like a waste of time or energy or beyond your love and care. And then Jesus does something really sweet. He does something really unique. Verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And and taking this child in his arms, he said to his disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives Not me, not only me, but him who sent me. Jesus took a child in his arms. Why is this significant? Why does it matter? Children, just like today, are powerless in society and dependent on parents. If you have a young child or you've raised a young child, you know that uh, it's a difficult thing. Children don't give back. Raising children, especially small children, is a 24-7 serviced act of service. I have two kids under five, and I never come home and think, wow, look at all the ways you guys served me today. <laughs> you served me and my mom's, me and mom so great. You put away all the clothes and the dishes. You made us a meal. I can't, I'm looking forward to all the ways you're going to serve me tomorrow. It just doesn't happen like that. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a servant. And so the attitude of the disciples' heart was on hierarchy, And yet the attitude of Jesus' heart was on humility. The attitude of Jesus' heart and his teaching did not even overlook a lowly child. So no matter who you are and what you've done, Jesus sees you. He's not too busy for you. He's not like, I just have my crew and you're not a part of that. He wants to invite you in. He wants to transform your heart and your mind. So today, are we just aligning our hearts a little bit more with the heart of Christ? Inviting the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Jesus receives a child. And a child is is really a perfect, perfect example of all the marginalized in ancient society. So what does Jesus do with these types of people, the overlooked, the marginalized, the lowly? He receives them, and he gives them worth. And we should also be willing to receive, to take on lowly and receive lowly people, unnoticed tasks, 
and care for those with low status. Dane uh, Ortland writes this. He says, there's one place in the Bible that's unique in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, you know that verse, come to me all you who are weary. There's one verse he says, where the son of man pulls back the veil and lets us peer down to the core of who he is where we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are, to- we are not told that he is even joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The big point here that we kind of want to focus in on, double click on, is if we miss caring and serving the the lowly, we miss the heart of Jesus. If we miss caring and serving the lowly, we miss the heart of Jesus. Ortland continues, right? He said, lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. We know if we've read in the Bible that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In closing, it's, it's not difficult to see that we live in a culture obsessed with greatness, obsessed with fame, a culture trying to achieve greatness and, and sometimes lording that greatness and those achievements over others. The question today that we want to not ask, we don't want to say who is the greatest. We want to ask the question, who can we best serve? Who can we best serve? How can we live a life of seeing, of receiving and of serving others in our community? How can we serve like Jesus has served? Do we see what Jesus sees? Do we want to align our heart more with the heart of Christ? Who do we best serve? And as we continually are transformed by the good news of Jesus, the good news that he gives us here in verse 31, that the Son of Man was delivered, that he was handed over into the hands of men, and he was killed And after three days, he rose from the grave. We serve others best by loving them. No matter who they are, we love them where they're at. And we speak the gospel in every season and in everything, seeing everyone as worthy of love and worth, even the least of these. Chapter 9 shouts to us that there is no place in the Christian life There is no place for criticism. There is no place for causing others to sin. And and today we're really focusing on there is no place for criticism. As Christians, we know who the greatest is. We follow the greatest man that's ever existed. We follow Jesus. We we learn from him. We walk with him. we, We talk with him. And we look to Jesus, his life, and we see his heart, and it's a heart of compassion and care and humility and grace and gentleness, and love. Who can we best serve as we follow the greatest person that's ever existed, Jesus Christ, is the question that we really want to walk away with. We pray with you. Lord, thank you so much uh, for today. And just your, your words, Lord, in Mark chapter 9. Lord, as the band comes up and we continue to worship we just want to align our hearts with, with, who you, with everything that you are, Lord. It's so easy to get into um, 
trying to figure out, well, what are those next steps? What are the 10 things that we can do to, to serve others? And while those things are beautiful, Lord, if we miss the gospel, if we don't do it in your power, if we don't do it, Lord, how you have set it before us, Lord, we are just in and of ourselves doing it, Lord, in an incorrect way. So, Lord, as we align our heart with the heart of your Son, as we are empowered by your Spirit, I pray, Lord, as we live our ordinary, everyday life, as we just go about as we, as we always do in the places, Lord, that you have put us, may we just be able to serve people genuinely, Lord, out of an overflow of the love and the grace and the understanding of knowing who you are. Lord, I pray, Lord, this week that you will surprise us in, in a new way where, where we are new in you and maybe we go back to the tendency of, of feeling like we're old but, and going back to some of those old ways, those old patterns. Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that you will transform our minds and our hearts, that we can just uh, spend time with you and serve you in, uh, in the most amazing ways. Lord, go before us this week. Go before us today. We love you. We thank you. We continue to praise you and all that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.